Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod, Robert Gibbs, and Mike Murphy. If I lost, I'd be a very gracious loser. If I lost, I would say I lost, and I'd go to Florida, and I'd take it easy, and I'd go around, and I'd say I did a good job. But you can't ever accept when they steal and rig and rob. Can't accept. Okay. Well, there you have it, Gibbs. I feel like I'm in a Roman Coliseum. Yeah, well, you know, the fact is, I don't know what the count is in the Washington Post on uh, falsehoods and lies that the president has told, but maybe the biggest whopper of all is that he would be a gracious loser. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, Speaking of gracious losers. <laughs> speaking of gracious losers, here's John Heilman, our old buddy. That. I saw he that of the, the circus and MSNBC. and I like to think that if I get my ass handed to me i don't go back and say please hand my ass to me again over and over again in the same contest it's like a very special it's a very special kind of glutton for punishment gluttony for punishment that we see on trump's part here yeah he has an unparalleled string of losses in the courts uh all the certifications and all of that so uh you guys uh, let's let's i want to talk about the larger because Heilman, you and i were texting about this yesterday My, my phone was literally smoking from your a sense of concern about what this means for the polity uh, moving forward. And we should talk about that. I want to focus just for a second on what the hell Donald Trump is up to here, because I don't think it's just about assuaging his ego. He he is not that. (laughs) Well, there's totally that. I mean, and he was raised, you know, to believe that there are losers and there are killers and you're either one or the other. And loser is the worst thing that you can be. And I have no doubt he cannot accept that reality. But there are other, you know, more rational things at play. He's making a boatload of money off this, Heilman. Yes. I mean, millions and millions, tens of, well, he's raised a quarter of a million dollars, a quarter of a billion dollars, quarter of a billion billion with a B. With a B. So yeah, he's bringing in a bunch of money. And there's all kinds of, you guys might know more about this than I do, but there's all kinds of loopholes about what you can do with that money. It seems like, you know, he's, as usual, finding the grift. You know, he finds an angle, he finds a seam, he finds some way to basically bring some dough in that he can do something with that's not really intended to do. Oh, help me fight my legal fights. And then, you know, the money somehow goes with him into his post-presidency. Yes. Um, so there's that. I mean, but there's also, I think, you know, I mean, I don't think there's, I don't know whether Trump, I mean, he clearly is going to say he's going to run in 2024. I don't know whether he's actually going to run in 2024, but he clearly, the notion, I I think it's like, I've never thought that it was obvious that Trump like enjoyed being president, but he clearly enjoys being the center of attention, right? That much we can agree on. And the notion that he would leave the White House and suddenly be, you know, having been at the the white hot center of the world's attention for four years and now go and fade into obscurity um, seems like a fate worse than death to me. You know, in terms of the psychology of this, he needs to continue to have people paying attention to him. And that requires him to accrue power, relevance, influence, and so on going forward. And it seems like he's going to, you know, unless the long arm of the law gets him first, it seems like he's going to do everything in his power to continue to be relevant going forward. That, as much as anything, seems to me what's going on here. Yeah, he certainly sets himself up as critic in chief. He stays in the news every day if he wants to by announcing, as you said, John, whether or not he actually runs in four years, who knows? But he 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 says that 
he seems to have lifted up the RNC uh, and protected that space for his political future, and he freezes the field. I mean, yeah. every every poll that you look at shows him fifty four percent say uh, Republicans say they want him to be the nominee again in twenty twenty four. So I mean, it's a, it's a good place to sit. That you guys are, are are looking at it more benignly than I am. Let me raise two other uh, possibilities here. One is. He's got a boatload of legal problems, uh, you know, in New York State. Uh, Seems fairly uh, more likely than not that uh, the district attorney in Manhattan may move against him in the Trump organization, that the state attorney general may uh, move against him in the Trump organization. Uh, If he is is actively running for president of the United States again or saying that he is, you can write the storyline. You know, they are trying to stop us just like they stole that election. They're trying to stop me from running again. They're trying to steal your chance. Uh, So that's one uh, piece of it. And then I mentioned you this uh, offline, Robert. I I spoke to a real smart guy uh, in New York on Wall Street uh, who said, think about this for a second. This guy has $425 million in debt. Uh, Who's going to lend him money? What conventional lender is going to lend Donald Trump money? But if the if if people think he could, he he has the juice in the Republican Party still, he's still pulling the strings. He may be president of the United States someday. Well, not just the Russians, but there are all kinds of other people who will have an impetus to try and make sure that he you know to try and ingratiate themselves by getting him the money uh, that he needs. So. There is a madness to his method, but there's also a method to his madness, hmm. Heilman. You can use that, by the way. I'm, I wrote it down just now. <laughs> um, actually, wait, we're recording this, so it's all good. We got it. Um, it. The other thing is that, you know, there's a lot of, to your point, David, about like smart guys in New York. You know, the lawyers, the, the people in the legal world who have been most gimlet-eyed about Trump have always thought that part of the game here, and I can't tell whether this is, is fantastical or maybe just plausible enough that facing these various legal jeopardies that he faces, that what he's trying to do potentially is create so much chaos and drama that he becomes such a um, he becomes such a problem. To go back to to the the problem he opposes to the body to the polity, right? To yeah. the, to, to our politics, right. is there some leverage it gives him to cut some kind of a global legal deal? Everybody focuses on the. Can he pardon himself? Who could? What's the pardon power? And we know that that doesn't extend to state uh, matters. But is there? Is he angling potentially to try to cut a global deal where he would basically say to people, "I will go away quietly and and rid you of all of this turmoil if you will make a global deal with me that allows me to stay out of jail." Is that a? Is that an angle that Trump could be playing? It has been suggested to me by lawyers that that is potentially an angle that he's playing. And and whether that's plausible or not is kind of beside the point, because Trump has played a lot of angles in the past that have not really been plausible. Is that maybe in his head and possibly driving him towards this kind of behavior? Yeah, interesting. And it dangles out there what you said, Amin, which is like, if you let me off, the chaos goes away. Now, right. my, my guess is, I'm yes. not sure whether that's... I'm sure that might be worth a lot to the body politic. I'm not sure I would trust him to necessarily go away because we get back to the original point, which is this guy craves being the center of attention. If this guy could just go off and play golf twice a day for the rest of his life, I have no doubt he would. I just don't think his mind would let him do that. I don't know also how you enforce Force uh, it. 
exactly right. how you enforce something like that. But let's talk about the larger thing. More than 70% of Republicans now question the result of the election. I mean, uh, even as Republican office holders who were charged with counting the votes in places like uh, Arizona and Georgia, where this election was uh, decided, have counted and recounted. And uh, I mean, there really isn't any evidence that they, they have this epic losing streak over 40 cases filed and lost. And in none of them has evidence been produced uh, that would even come close to supporting what he said. And yet 70 percent of Republicans say that and, and, and that has an impact, doesn't it? How I mean, this is what you were smoking up my uh, my uh, my cell phone about. Yes. And, and you were smoking back about some other matters related to the Democratic Party. But I'll, look, I mean, in 2016, in the aftermath of 2016, we all freaked out correctly about Russian misinformation and disinformation and how it had had been a, a, a successful form of election interference right the president of the united states is now is now peddling a, a form the president the former the, the current president soon to be former president of the united states is now peddling the biggest lie in the history of american politics that a multi-state multi-million vote conspiracy engineered uh through the software through you know all kinds of crazy ass mechanisms it, with the help of the dead Hugo Chavez is has is stolen an election that's not actually that close and the majority of republicans believe it and the majority the vast majority of elected national republican office holders are now complicit in it not i mean we've now seen the washington post and the new york times have gone and asked all these senators and 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 representatives and it's not like even a close, like a narrow majority, it's the vast majority of them will not come out and say that Joe Biden won the election. And again, it's the biggest lie told from the most powerful office in the country, and it's being bought. And I, it just strikes me that, A, I mean, I, now I'm not even on, in high dudgeon about it morally, although, I, I mean, I am. Jeez, what do you sound like when you're in high dudgeon? <laughs> but I'm more Pitch just like... Similar. I'm just more like this thing that we've all talked about, all all three of us and all of our friends that we've watched over the course of our careers, this notion of, you know, the information, the hermetically sealed information bubbles, these self-sealed world. Yeah, where, right. Th- that, that, that thing that has gone along with political polarization that's been the defining character of our professional lives, the, the politics are getting more polarized and people are living increasingly in a, in, in a totally alternative right. factual universes. This, to me, is the apotheosis of that to this moment where the president and his whole party, by and large, are endorsing a thing that is as fantastical as the notion that Neil Armstrong did not walk on the moon, that it was shot on a soundstage in Arizona or something, right? Oh, don't start that again. That's that's how fucking nutty this is, and yet it's been mainstreamed entirely, and it just seems to me that we are on a path to doom if that is the, the, the trajectory of the way we talk about politics and the way we believe politics, that 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 a ginormous portion of the country could come to believe something that ludicrous with the endorsement of one of the nation's great, formerly great political parties. How I mean, everyone knows that was filmed in in California. Sorry, I know, I know. Sorry, I get the details wrong sometimes. Uh, you know, I was uh, the, the not impressed by the college football on on Saturday night, so I ventured over to Fox to watch the rally, and and I agree deeply with what John said. I mean, the most depressing parts of that rally, we played some of that, but like the the idea where the president says, 
You can walk into a polling place. You don't even have to be registered. You don't even have to be from this country. You can cast a ballot and you can walk down the street and do it again. I mean, the notion, what, what, I, what I think we, we thought about at the very end of the election was that this was a problem that would begin to correct itself a week from now when the Electoral College met. Yeah. And the challenge is, we, I'm reminded of like that scene in Animal House at the very end, you know, where they march the band down the dead end. And there's nowhere to turn around. I don't think there's anywhere for 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 this to turn around. We're stuck. We're going to be bouncing into each other because there isn't a way. You, you can't just say, oh, well, we found out that there wasn't fraud and Joe Biden actually won. And, hey, we're sorry for the last month. I don't think people, to again, to John's point, you can't take 225 members of the House of Representatives and the Republican Party and just say, oops, we were wrong. I mean, this knot is going to be in our body politic for a while. Well, let's, here's my question, because we are hacks and people look to us for deep strategic insights, the fools. Uh, and, uh, but, but what does this mean uh, for, um, uh, for, because it seems to me, again, you know, method, method to, to the madness, uh, Trump is, by spinning this tale, is, uh, wrapping his arms around this Republican base. And what are the implications for Republicans, A, who want to cooperate with Biden, uh, and B, uh, Republicans who think they're going to run for president when this, this dude is hanging out and saying, no, I'm, I'm going again. I mean, look, I think it makes the country, the, the larger problem here makes the country increasingly close to ungovernable. And, and look, we've seen it as the polarization has deepened in, in, again, in the course of our careers, the, the Congresses get less and less productive, empirically speaking, every single Congress. Less gets done. The large problems the country faces don't get addressed. And I'm not like, you know, some like great, like, you know, fan of tapioca centrism, but like the, the, the space for compromise doesn't really exist anymore. There's no political incentive for it. And it's, there's not even a real be- a shared belief about what the nature of the problems are. So that's a, a huge governing challenge, right? And then there's the political thing. And just to make the, to make the most obvious point, I may be stealing this from Pluff, but like there's going to be a, a 2004 election, whether Donald Trump's in that field or not. The first Republican debate, they're all going to stand up there. And the, and the moderator, if I were moderating it, I'd say, um, show of hands, how many people believe that Donald Trump, uh, that Joe Biden stole the election in 2020? And what Republican on that stage, under these circumstances, given these beliefs and given what has just played out, what Republican's going to put their hand up and say, yeah, Joe Biden was always a legitimate president. Donald Trump just lied to you. You know, there's going to be yeah, maybe, maybe a, be a, a losing Republican. Is this yes. a, tr- a trick question? <laughs> I think this is when we start to chant stop the steal, isn't it? Well, first of all, uh, let me say, given this is this is what you were saying to me the other day, um, but given this, I'm glad this isn't our pre-holiday show because I wouldn't want to send people off uh, feeling as gloomy as all that. But I, I agree with you. Uh, the, you know, uh, Trump didn't invent all this stuff, but he turbocharged it. And he's kind of a you remember the Stuxnet worm, Gibbs, when we were in the. Yep. Uh, that got into the Iranian Iranian uh, system and fouled up their nuclear program. Uh, he is like a Stuxnet worm in our democracy, and he just does. Uh, uh, he's 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 doing uh, uh, tremendous damage to people's faith uh, in these institutions, and he's freezing one half of the you know the governing half of the country and making it much more difficult for them uh, to cooperate. So. 
Let's talk about these silos. Yeah, I was smoking up your phone as well because I do, you know, Democrats are relieved and they should be because they have managed to oust Trump. Apparently, by the way, he says uh, there's some reports today that he's just going to leave for Christmas and never come back and just wait out the rest of his presidency at Mar-a-Lago. Hence, uh, seems very plausible. Yeah. Well, it it, and that would relieve us of the problem of how you actually get him to physically uh, uh, physically go. But um, but, you know, for Democrats, once you look below that top line. Uh, the news really wasn't very good because it turns out that in a democratic system like ours, the way the Constitution has structured it, if you can you can dominate those big metropolitan areas as Democrats did, uh, get more votes than the other party, but lo- lose 80 percent of the counties in the country where Republicans clean up in races for Congress and races for the legislature. And that's what happens. So you've got uh, a Democratic president who, by the way, actually won by the margin of about 43,000 votes in three states, Georgia, Arizona, and Wisconsin. Those go the other way. It's a tie. goes to the House of Representatives. Donald Trump may have been reelected because they vote by delegation, not by member. So if Democrats continue to cede 80% of the country, if they can't break through, uh, you know, they're kind of screwed. Uh, in in my view, at least in the short run, maybe the demographics will. But but even there, because of the way we apportion seats, because each state gets two senators uh, uh, in the Senate, I, I think this is a big problem. And Democrats have to figure out how to solve it. Joe Biden was a palliative uh, because he had enough cred and he was not he wasn't a scary figure to suburbanites uh, who came over. Uh, but long term. The party has to think, uh, uh, has a bunch of thinking through to do. Stay tuned as we pay some bills and you listen to some ads. You know, Gibbs, every once in a while uh, on Twitter, people will write in and say, Axe, you make me nauseous. But nausea is nothing to joke about. It's like getting stuck in the back of a car and you're kind of a little bit hemmed in and you just you get that feeling and it starts in your stomach. It's not. Yeah. A and, and, and like you're on your way to something good, a, a celebration or party or something. And now you're nauseous and you can't get rid of it, except there is an answer now and it's called Relief Band. Tell us about Relief Band. Relief Band is the number one FDA cleared anti-nausea wristband that has been clinically proven to quickly relieve and effectively prevent nausea and vomiting associated with motion sickness, anxiety, migraines, hangovers, morning sickness, chemotherapy, and so much more. The product is 100% drug-free, non-drowsy, and provides all-natural relief with zero side effects, zero, for as long as needed. The technology was originally developed over 20 years ago in hospitals to relieve nausea from patients, but now through Relief Band, it's available to all of us. Here's how it works with Relief Band. It stimulates a nerve in the wrist that travels to the part of the brain that controls nausea. Then it blocks the signal your brain is sending to your stomach telling you that you're sick. Relief Band is the only over-the-counter wearable device that has been used in hospitals and oncology clinics to treat nausea and vomiting. If you know somebody who deals with nausea, Relief Band makes a great gift. 
I'm telling you, relief band works. We know from our own experience, we sent one to our engineer who often gets nauseous during our shows, and he reports 100% cure. Don't fall for those cheap bands you see in drugstores or on your Instagram feed. All right. Right now, Relief Band has an exclusive offer just for our Hacks listeners. If you go to reliefband.com and use promo code HACKS, you'll receive 20% off plus free shipping and a no questions asked 30-day money-back guarantee. So head to reliefband, R-E-L-I-E-F-B-A-N-D, Dot com and use our promo code HACKS for 20% off plus free shipping. Well, your point in the in those texts, David, which was which is what you just said, but with an extra layer of, of, of kind of populist anger on top of it, which was essentially like, which I think is, is where we're, again, where we're headed, right? Which is, Increasingly, the Republican Party can is and can make lay claim to being the party of working people. You know that's that's where this is yes. increasingly going. A, a very a pol- the polarization is going to match up increasingly, not perfectly, but increasingly because there's this because there's a there's some discontinuity among non-white voters, and particularly among black voters. But a lot of for the white for white working people, and particularly out outside the big cities. That's the Republican Party now in a, in a world where the alignment is a Democratic elite, overclass, highly yes. educated, knowledge workers living in big cities and a Republican Party that represents people who work with their hands, whether that's in a field or in a right. factory. That's a, you know, that's a that's, that's a recipe, not just for, for polarization and paralysis, but for class warfare. Yeah. And, and, you know, we used to have cross class coalitions where the Democratic Party represented you know, the working class and also had a lot of, of knowledge workers in it. Republican parties are, are across classes too. And now it's increasingly there's this sorting that's going on along economic on an economic basis. And I think that's also super worrying. And if you're just from the point, this point of view of a Democratic strategist, it can't be that Democrats, given the history of the party, given what the party was in the era yeah. of Franklin Roosevelt, right. it can't be what Democrat is content to cede uh, the working class you know, to Republicans. I don't think any Democrat should be content with that. That is precisely my point. And just to to put a finer point on this, uh, you know, I I think I read that 70% of the wealth in this country uh, exists in those 500-something counties that that Biden won. In the other 2,500, 30%. Thirty percent. This has all been exacerbated too by what we the impact of COVID. I mean, we've got this. We're living in this wild parallel universe where every other day the stock market hits a new record, and yeah. the line for food banks, uh, small businesses grow- close, people don't get paychecks. Yeah. yeah. No. Listen, man. Even as we talk about the virus, the three of us are sitting in comfortably in wherever we're sitting. We can do our work uh, by by Zoom. Uh, we're not worried about the next paycheck. Uh, and if if you have money invested in the stock market, you're actually getting wealthier uh, during all of this. And we moralize. We say to the country, you know what? It's your moral obligation to shut your business down. It's your moral obligation to forego that paycheck uh, because for, for obvious reasons. And, and we do have to get the country uh, to do these things, to get through this thing. But the we, Democrat, uh, you know, e- elites tend to speak 
from that position of moral, uh, you know, imperative, uh, climate change. You know, freaking planet is burning up. It's obvious we have to do something profound about it. But if you're someone who lives, if you get your money by extracting energy from the ground, uh, or, you know, if that's how you get your paycheck, uh, or you lay pipe, you know, for these, the, for the transmission of this energy, uh, you, you know, you're not, you're not, you're not totally with the program. And the question is, what do we have to say to those people? Do we, do we have any sense of what they're thinking and what they're going through? And how do we, how do we address that? No, I would just say this, X. I mean, I think for the Democratic Party, I think it, it is, it's potentially existential in its crisis. And what I mean by that is the, the, the idea that somehow we can gain a majority in the Senate or we're going to gain a majority in the House of Representatives or a majority in some of these state legislatures by not competing in these areas seems like an easy answer. We, we don't actually have a choice. And then add in what Heilman talked about in just in terms of the history of the party. Yeah. Um, and now I think here's the good news for Democrats. I think the language that Joe Biden speaks when he talks about working class voters is real and authentic. Yes. It comes from his upbringing, his values, his family history. Like he lived it. And, you know, I, I think, I think Democrats are going to have to, we talked, we've talked a little bit about this. They've got to get a sharper economic message that means something to those voters that gives a helping hand and, and charts uh, a path towards, um, something that is akin to the type of American dream that we've talked about before, that they, that, that their kids will be better off than they were, that they'll have access to quality education, even if it doesn't go to college, but it, it, there's a, there's, there's training involved, that there's the ability to get a decent job. You know, you look at like, I think one of the reasons that Obama did so well with these voters in the end was, you, you know, it, what we were able to talk about with auto workers in 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 saving the auto industry helped him sort of enunciate this. But I think we've got to redouble this. We've got to make sure that when when we have trade, which everybody thinks we should do, but we've got to figure out a pathway to make this work. Yeah, I mean, look, I think that uh, first of all, it, well, trade's another good issue because we people were told and told and told that. Yes, we have to do it. It's really important for American business, and there'll be great benefits for trading. But the what what we learned was that the benefits don't always show up in the places where people have to sacrifice. So your factory Rarely may does. close. Someone yeah. else somewhere in America is going to benefit from that. Uh, you know that factory is going to go overseas. The the company yeah. will benefit from it. But your town is decimated. We have to have answers for that. Uh, yes. Or, or you get what you get, and we should. We'd be, I mean, we'd look like a bunch of assholes, which we've done before, but we try and avoid it. <laughs> yeah, so what's but new? if we didn't, yeah. you know, acknowledge what this breeds, also is a, a spawning ground for uh, racial antagonism, anti-immigrant yes. fervor, uh, fervor, all the things that Donald Trump is pa a past master at stirring up and surfing the politics of. Uh, of anger and resentment among people who think that the smarty pants, you you know, smarty pants elites, yeah. uh, you know, in the on the coasts and in the Democratic Party, just don't give a shit about them. 
in the course of that crazy, when I ran around the last week of the election and I was in 13 states in seven days, you know, one of the places I stopped was a place you guys are very familiar with, which is the state of Iowa. And it was the night that Ann Selzer's poll came out, um, the Saturday night before the election. Yes, the last poll. which I roundly dismissed like a As big it, jerk. Yep. And so I sat sitting there with Matt Paul, Democratic strategist, uh, and yeah. Dave Kochel, Republican strategist, who was working for Joni Ernst and has worked for Kim Reynolds and knows the state really well, Republican-wise. And when the numbers dropped and it had Trump by eight, up by eight, um, when he had been in the her previous poll in September, it had been a tie race. And we were all puzzling through it, trying to figure it out. And I said to Kochel, who you know knows the, who was looking at a lot of data on the Republican side, I said, you know, does this seem right to you? And he said, it doesn't, it maybe is overstated slightly. It turned out to be exactly accurate. But right. he's like, you know, here's the deal in Iowa. You know, the deal is that people are just sick of COVID. They are desperate to believe that that we have turned the corner. They are buying Trump's story. They they want to get back to work. They want to get back to normal. And that they, they need, they're economically strapped. And And at that point, you know, Matt and I both said, well, but that's all of Trump's fault. You know, how is that, you know, the, all the things that COVID is is, is, right. is is wreaking devastation on the state are all can be laid at the doorstep of Donald Trump. And Kochel just looked at us both and said, Democrats have not made that case. You know, here in Iowa, Democrats have not made that case. And I was inclined to dismiss the view until Iowa, you know, came in with Trump plus eight again. And this is a state you guys know you guys won this state twice. And now it's two successive cycles where uh, the Democrat has lost by eight or nine points. And it's not a state that should necessarily be, you know, core red. But you look at what's going on at the congressional level. Um, you look at what's going on throughout that state, and you realize that this is like a, a very vivid illustration of a place where, you know, all of the things that we thought Democrats. It's like if this election's about COVID, they're making the case that you got to solve COVID before you can solve the economy. They did not make that sale in that state. He depicted the Democratic Party as a bunch of status scolds. Right. Telling people yes. that uh, that, you know, they couldn't go to work and they couldn't uh, pick they couldn't earn their paycheck. And um, and remember, these states, uh, you know, a state like Iowa is, uh, you know, overwhelmingly white, probably the oldest state in the country. Um, yes. You know, I, I mean, one thing that Democrats need to, to 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 recognize is the the upper Midwest. Uh, and the Midwest, once a, uh, a very competitive area for them, is slipping away. Uh, right. You know where the growth is is in uh, is in the Sun Belt, where you have a combination of large minority populations and burgeoning suburbs uh, right. of of younger, more more uh, you know more liberal uh, voters. That's what happened in uh, Georgia. That's what happened in Arizona. In Arizona. But 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 worrying signs there too, right? If you you know like me, you know I grew up in Los Angeles, California, and you know I I can remember you know I you know the, it's a complicated picture when you think about the the nature of you know Democrats have basically seen we've all, all been told for years about the coalition of the ascendant. Democrats will dominate with yeah. non-white voters, and what we saw in this election also was slippage with Hispanic voters. That if you again, if I'm a Democratic strategist, which I'm not. I'd be pretty concerned about it because the reality is that Hispanics and African-Americans are not the same in a lot of respects. And there's right. a reason why Karl Rove was focused not on increasing George W. Bush's share of the black vote, but on, on thinking that there was an opportunity for Republicans to dominate with Hispanic voters. Trump, you know, and his people are not, you know, strategists in the Karl mode, but they they seized on a thing that is true about Hispanic voters. And there's a lot of cultural conservatism there. All these places where these wedges can come out. And there's all these places where, again, Democrats, having lost their purchase 
to a large extent with working Americans now seeing the possibility that Donald Trump could increase his performance with both Hispanics in a dramatic way and with black Americans. Yeah. Where, I mean, I, again, Democrats have some significant problems to solve here. You know, they it's, it's not, there's nothing about the demography uh, or about the way in which Democrats have handled the economic challenges that you were talking about, Axe, in terms of how do you deal with globalization? How do you mm-hmm. tell that story? How do you make people understand? Well, how do you actually you know, ver- help people yes. through that transition in a way yes. that they feel and see and believe and feel like, you know, I, I mean, I, I live in rural Michigan and I think about my neighbors and I think about what about the Democratic messaging? I think Biden, I agree with uh, uh, Gibbs that the that Biden has a better uh grip on this you know he because of where he's from because of yeah. his instincts uh i think his economic plan to the extent that people heard it was w- w- spoke very much to the these folks more than uh than perhaps the abstractions that they're accustomed to but uh like by and large you know my neighbors I don't think that they're talked to very much. I don't think they feel right. like they're part of this. We, right. Democrat Party sends signals saying, you know what, you we are the coalition of the ascendant, and you're not a part of it. Yep. And that just makes uh, Donald Trump's uh, that makes Donald Trump's jobs easier. I th- we should say parenthetically, Republicans have their own problems. Oh as, my God! As, of course, as a, sure. uh, a, a, a good Republican friend of mine said, "Here, our problem is we're shrinking in places where the country's growing, and growing in places where the country's shrinking." And that's not a prescription for uh, putting together a majority in the country either. But again, I, I, to, to your point, Axe, I think it, economically, this is actually going to get worse before it gets better because we haven't mentioned that automation and what that will do to this is is only going to take what we've been dealing with in globalization and put it on steroids. Yes. And so, look, I, again, I, I think we have, as a Democratic Party, there's no choice but to dig in on speaking to these communities, white, brown, or black, in a different set of language that talks about uh, opportunity in a much deeper, more concrete way. Uh, and from an election standpoint, we have to stop thinking about a bunch of these communities as something that we just have to turn ads on to three weeks before the end of a campaign and assume they're all going to vote at 90%, uh, and spend a lot more time having a long-term dialogue with, uh, how to make their lives better. I just think that includes a lot more concrete answers, right? It, it includes a lot more. You know, as we get into a pathway to how we get more people insured, how do we cut their costs in healthcare? How do we send more people to get a better education? And that may not include an education that's in college or a master's degree, but it's like, how do we improve high schools? Your last, your last point is important. First of all, dialogue in, in, in it it uh, implies dialogue you know it implies that a conversation that runs two ways and it also you know part of the problem here is you know we we lionize the essential workers who uh, who help us in a crisis uh we we patronize them uh all the rest of the time people who work with their hands people who you know electricians and plumbers and people who 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 uh, work in the service industry and so on and there is an added you know, and we tell them you know we are going to help you we are going to send you to college you know so you right. can be like us uh and the fact is that that there is a there is a fundamental disrespect uh to that 
that I, I think uh, it, so it's not just about having deliverables and tangibles to offer. It's about changing an attitude that basically thinks of these folks as something less. To obviously make the point that we've all made, but I'll say it again, you know, if I, there are a Republican Party that's based on that, that is based largely at this point because of Donald Trump's grip on it and because of other forces that have been driving it the last 20 years, it's based fundamentally on white grievance in a part in a country that is increasingly not white is a not great position to be number in one. The long number term. two, and number two, you know, this thing we talked about earlier in the conversation, which is this notion of separate realities and the information bubbles. I just, I'm going to, I'm going to go to my grave believing that a, that a party that is fundamentally detached from reality is not in the strongest position to compete in the long run. You know, you can, you can win, a, you can win a, in your bubble, but in the end there is a reality out there and you have, yeah. to, you have to address it. If you're fundamentally disconnected from it, you're not in a good position. Having said that, here's a really fine point on this question for Democrats, which is having spent a lot of time on watching Bernie Sanders in 2016 and 2020, you know, you have a person who's very focused on the working class, does not talk down to uh, working people, talks, yes. speaks, speaks their language, um, commanded a huge amount of enthusiasm among that kind of voter uh, in both of those nomination contests, um, and is a socialist, a self-described socialist. And in the Democratic Party, you have, you know, people who think that that a large chunk of the Democratic Party are, you know, the the Democratic donor class and the knowledge workers and the people with money, the kind of people who a Democrat the other day who said to me in a just matter of fact way, not bemoaning it or celebrating it, said, you know, COVID has been really good for all of us who have capital going into the pandemic. If you had capital going into this pandemic, you have a lot more now. You know, that is a a a form of Democrat who looks at Bernie Sanders and says, that is the death of our party. If we go down the path of Bernie Sanders and AOC, we are fucked. And there's another part of the party that says, well, that's the only way to survive because they're the only ones in the party who are actually speaking the language of working people. And and I don't I don't have a prescription for that, but that is a pretty big divergence of view about 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 both the social, cultural, and most importantly in this case, economic orientation of this party going forward. That's a big cleavage. And in some respects, Republicans have one thing going for them, which is that there's a homogeneity to the party. They don't have these fights. And that's, you know, a problem, but also, you know, uh, it, it, it's also kind of a, an advantage in certain in a certain narrow respect. And I don't know, how do you solve that problem? Because there's a lot of Democrats, actually, you know, walking around, the, walking around right now who think that the biggest problem Democrats faced in 2020 was that it, they became easily parodied as the, as the party of socialism, even when, you know, Joe Biden was the furthest thing from a socialist. Okay, then let's take a break right here, and we'll be right back. Biden was somewhat impervious to the, and the Republicans sort of acknowledged it after a while. He, he, they could not tag him as a socialist, radical left, mob coddling, uh, right. you know, defund police uh, person. And so they said, he's sort of irrelevant. He's just a, 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 a Trojan horse for a party of right. all those people. And they, and the party got tagged. And that's one of the reasons why, for example, the party did poorly in, in Miami-Dade, where yes. the term socialist has a much different meaning than it does to some young progressives. 
and again, lost seats in the House of Representatives and did not do it nearly as well as they thought they were going to do in the, in the United States Senate. So, you know, Biden was impervious to that to a large extent. But but on the, in the rest of the party, again, there's a case to be made that that was a, a problem for the party writ large in 2020. But I think, again, I think I think Biden is a little bit of a I think he shows a little bit of a path here because I, I don't disagree with you, John, that you've got this cleavage. The challenge is the solution after the rhetoric of speaking to working families is, I don't know, pulling, it's clearly not pulling a majority of even Democratic voters into it, right? So I need, I want to make your healthcare more accessible and more affordable. Let's redo the entire system. I think is, is that, that you, you know, you talk about the, the, the bridge that needs to be, or the divide that needs to be bridged. I just don't think that's necessarily the leap. And the question is, how do you marry the rhetoric with, I think, some policy proposals that allow you to animate how to fix that divide and and how to fix these challenges and problems without thinking that the entire system has to be turned on its head. Because I think from a real structural standpoint, it's really difficult to do. And I don't think we can wait until um, you know, they add DC and Guam and uh, Puerto Rico into the Senate to figure out how we're going to get some of these things passed. Look, I, I kind of agree. I mean, I think the answer, Heilman, to your question is there is an element of uh, Sanders' politics that are really, really important, and that is to lift up and um, and embrace and 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 respect. Uh, people, uh, you know, across the country who do work with their hands and who do do other kinds of things other than sitting in front of a computer and uh, and 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 zooming, you know, uh, I mean, he there 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 that is really important and to kind of, uh, you know, you know, hear them and uh, and relate to their lives. And, you know, the Democratic Party if it, if it envisions himself as a party of working people, but it doesn't feel that way to a lot of working people, and the Democratic Party needs to figure that uh, needs to figure that out. Listen on the on this issue of Biden and how he navigates this. If he can make his economic vision uh, the uh, front and center here, um, that would be good for the Democratic Party. He's also got to navigate uh, all his commitments. Um, uh, commitments on racial equity, commitments on climate, commitments, on, and these are these lead you into hot buttons. I think the real challenge for him is going to be how do you navigate those things, fulfill these very very important commitments to your base, uh, and still work on this project of expanding it. Yeah, in the face of a, in the face of the thing, of all all things, you know, loop back to our first conversation in the face of a of a of a potentially a Republican controlled Senate and a Republican party that if anything thinks that he's even potentially more illegitimate as president than they thought Barack Obama was, which is kind of hard to imagine. But, you know, if you just look at the numbers, you know, it's, you know, they're as crazy as the conspiracy theory that Barack Obama was a Kenyan was, um, you know, uh, the, the conspiracy theory that Joe Biden, uh, stole this election is crazier and more Republicans believe it. And so, I mean, the challenges of making good, as you just said, acts on, on his commitments, on his promises, holding the Democratic coalition together, making people's lives better, getting out of the pandemic. These are giant challenges, even if you had a fairly constructive working relationship with the other side. But in the face of what he has, I mean, I don't want to say he's doomed to fail, but man, yeah, the degree tough. of difficult the degree of difficulty 
given both of those things, the challenges inside the party and then the part that then trying to actually govern in this moment, I just, man, I don't want to say poison chalice, but it is going to be hard going for Joe Biden. I do think it, though, it, it augurs that you don't really have multiple paths. I mean, if you had 54 Democratic senators, I think this pitch debate would be even louder and yes. the implications and the choices would be harder. I think if you've got maybe you have 50, uh, maybe you win both seats in Georgia and 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 you get that. But even as we talked about acts earlier, uh, we lived in a White House with 58 Democratic senators, and it's not easy to get stuff done. Uh, and then 59 Democratic senators. And at one point, I think we even had 60. But, you know, it, it gets really hard, even if you just have 50. So I think, you know, the, the pathway to me seems like it's it's less complicated because I'm not sure there is another path. I don't think there I mean, I don't think you can choose anything else. I would say one thing, and maybe it's a good way to good to segue into talking a bit about the other party. I don't think it's a given that every Republican will have the ability to speak to working voters the way Donald Trump did. Uh, and I, I don't think it's a given that um you know, that some of the the Republicans that we look that, that might be the heir to a Donald Trump are going to increase their share with black voters or with uh, Hispanic voters. I, I just think that that I, I think that's going to be a harder leap for most than than it than it we think it might be. I think the Republicans, what they're thinking is if you can be Trump light, if you can hit some of the same themes, but make yourself just a tad less objectionable, uh, you know, less obnoxious, less dislikable, then you can get some of these suburban voters back. And, um, you know, that that's and particularly among the men that that's what they're that that is how they're going to package, try and package themselves harder if Trump is is there. The question is, if you lent lessen that tension that keeps those suburban voters potentially away, does that really bring out the people that clearly came out that that hadn't been participating it it, you know they've got only so much wrapping paper to wrap the package uh right i just don't think for republicans that are heirs apparent that that's that is a necessarily a given i don't think you start with the trump coalition plus maybe you can pull in some suburbs but i think to your point x i mean their challenge is in seven of the last eight Eight. presidential elections they, they lost the popular vote and as you said they're gaining in places that are shrinking. I mean, look at a place like Georgia. Georgia is only possible because the place that is growing in Atlanta right. has uh, is multiracial, but also has those good-paying jobs, right? The big companies that are there, and it's the rural areas that are uh, are going to be challenged. And as time goes forward, um, the share, particularly in a place like Georgia, the white vote is going to continue to decrease as it did. Yeah. Between, no, that, look, I think long you know, term that is the case. The question is over the next 10 years and what what is the impact of the next 10, 12 years? You know, what, how do Democrats compete in 2022? I think it's a you know, they've got real challenges in terms of holding on to the House, much less winning the Senate. How do they win in 2024 when uh, it's very I think it's more likely than not that Biden won't be the candidate. He would not say that. You know, uh, we'll see. Okay, let's take a break right here for a word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. Real quick word, you guys, on the uh, on the transition and some of the appointments. 
and how you read those uh, right now. And then uh, we got a whole bunch of people who have really uh, good questions uh, and think somehow that you guys have the answers. I think structurally, I I think their appointments are going into the meat grinder that we've described here. I don't think there's, I I think this is a different, um, this is a different atmosphere. One, you you know, you're going to go into a, a Congress that is full and comprised of Republicans that have been telling their voters, the base we just talked about, that the guy nominating these people shouldn't even be the president, right? So there's there's a there's one scoop of skepticism, but I think the math of getting some of these confirmations to happen is is not going to be easy. And so, um, you know, I I think you're you're seeing a change in some of who they you know who they would have nominated with fifty two. Democratic senators versus potentially, you know, 48 of them or, you know, 49 of them. And I think that's uh, a challenge. I mean, look, I, I like a lot of the appointments and I think they reflect Biden very uh, well, his 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 theory of economics, his theory on global alliances and so on. But a lot of the focus now has become on the on the other part of his pledge, which is to have a more diverse cabinet, uh, Heilman, too much in light of the discussion we just had? I mean, not that he shouldn't be doing it, but is it too much emphasis on it? Well, I, I, I just sort of feel like the, the to start with that, you know, the, the appointments on in foreign policy and national security felt very sure-footed to me. Like they were, it was not surprising to me that they were the first, the first ones out of the box. And it's and the area that Biden is most uh, steeped in. Yes. You know, the thing that, you know, the, the issues, I mean, we know what Joe Biden cared about reflected by his his Senate committee uh, long held you know positions of status and seniority you know whether it's judiciary and foreign affairs when you get to economics and some of these other issues these are not the places that have been longtime passions of Biden's and where he doesn't have the kind of associations that he has with someone like a Tony Blinken right um, for his like years and years of closeness and so now that you're seeing the inevitable thing what will be called kind of the the, the push and pull of identity politics, um, on by by critics and 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 the the quest for diversity and try to create a cabinet that looks like America by those who are in favor of it. But you can see that the tensions are now, I think, becoming more evident. You're starting to see them kind of play out. But one that doesn't that really confuses me, and I really, as I thought about doing this podcast with you guys today, I really wanted to know what you both thought because I am baffled by the Doug Jones thing and and at, at the Justice Department. I I would have bet, I, I thought you know. I thought that Sally Yates, uh, or certainly not a white dude, would be, you know, there are a lot of really very, very qualified, talented, um, non-white and non-male potential uh, candidates for that job. And again, because the symbolic, uh, uh, because Yates is manifestly qualified um, and because of the symbolic kind of freight that it would carry, I sort of assumed that she was the front runner for that job. And I definitely thought that if she didn't get that job, it would not end up going to uh, a white male middle-aged uh, 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 guy like Doug Jones. So I don't really understand that. What is that about? Well, first of all, it hasn't ha- actually. It has no, but it's 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 definitely in the ether here. And and the appointment the appointment of Lloyd Austin at Defense makes it gives him more flexibility in yes. that job. Uh, in that job, look, um, I I know that he. Uh, I first of all, I think Jones is is a he is a great. He is, he's a good, you know, he, he was a great U.S. attorney. He's, you know, has all of those roots, prosecuted the church bombers, uh, yep. in, in Alabama. Um, and, 
you know, is 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 highly regarded. Probably great to restore uh, morale in the, in the agency. Um, but uh, you know, the same might be said of Yates and others. Um, and uh, so, I think this is about his own personal comfort with Jones. I think he right. really likes and believes in Jones. I think that, and I think they've created. They spent a lot of time thinking about how they could accomplish it. If it happens, it's a lot of the construct of some of the, uh, some of the rest of what they do will be about how they could justify putting Jones in that position. I, I agree. I mean, I think he comes with a, a certain amount of credibility in this time period, given the prosecutions around the 16th Street Baptist Church bombings. Um, right. And yeah. I don't think you. I don't think that just any. Um, if we're being casual, I don't just think any white guy would necessarily check this box. And I don't, I'm not trying to be funny or facetious. And there are a lot of white think, guys. So. I know. Right. But I think this is, yeah. I mean, I think he brings, there is a level of credibility that he brings that I think is important. I do think the com- the discussion we were just having about ease of confirmation is, yes. is probably um, factoring into, I, I, I think, I could see, you know, you could make a political argument that getting into a fight about Sally Yates isn't altogether a bad thing for Democrats. Um, but I could also see that based on some of the, just the position that she had at the beginning of the Trump administration is that automatically aligns lots, if not all, of Republicans against you. You know, I, I have a huge regard for her. Um, She's great. She's great. But it would draw you back into 2016. And I would just say, too, I don't think the Justice Department will be comprised of just one personality. I think you're going to have to and, and you're going to need really strong people at places like the Civil Rights Division that are going to help carry this. So I, I think if there's any department where where it's multiple faces and not just one face, one face. I think the, the justice department is, I think you could get a lot of like, Hey, we're going to just put this, we're going to put this broken thing back together and we're going to do it in a, in a, in a real kind of, you know, just matter of fact way. All right, let's do this mailbag. Gibbs, why do Republicans in Congress oppose stimulus bills that would provide state and local aid? Is the aid only for blue states? Wouldn't red states also benefit? They would, but they've perpetuated this idea, and and you've seen this with Trump, that somehow it's all the bad stuff in in big cities uh, happens in blue states or in in cities with uh, Democratic cities with with blue mayors. Uh, I mean, to me, this is a real... (laughs) We talk about these information bubble disconnects. I mean, I I can't imagine any U.S. senator that's talking to a governor that has dealt at all with COVID is seeing their tax base dwindle away and the need for some amount of aid, lest you cut a bunch of different important services. As we speak about, as we speak about this, I think they political. I think they that actually uh, McConnell may have given on this point. I think that what they're fighting about now is giving uh, liability indemnity to uh, every company that has any has been touched by. Yeah. If you're a Democrat and you're going to give away a bunch of that liability, get a bunch of money for it. Yeah. I mean, go big, right? Yeah. Go, we'll, we'll, go. We'll see where because, it goes. I will say, Heilman, that I think the way people are, uh, the way people perceive Washington is, we're out here, we're getting killed, we need help, uh, and they're screwing around. And uh, you know, I, I, I think that uh, 
it perpetuates a, I mean, I know that, uh, you know, people are fighting hard. I don't want to denigrate the efforts there, but the perception will be if they don't get something done uh, during the worst period of this virus, the perception will, uh, perceptions about Washington will harden. Yes. And in general, I am not like a big fan of like, I don't really, and often people say you now that when something like this happens, that there's like a pox on all their, on both their houses or whatever. And generally that's not true. Generally, because of the way political messaging works, someone ends up taking more of the brunt of the, you know, fairly or unfairly, more of the brunt of the blame. I do think in this case that the reality is that if they do not pass a piece of COVID uh, relief legislation before the end of this year, that there will be a, a, a and rightfully so, it's just, it's fucking insane that yeah. we are sitting here in December and this has not gotten done. Um, and Again, I'm not like trying to nitpick Nancy Pelosi or nitpick Mitch McConnell. I just think it's kind of astonishing. And I do think a lot of just ordinary voters who don't know, don't really follow the ins and outs of the legislative strategy, tactics, and minutia just look at this and go, this is why we think Washington is fucked. And, and I think, you know, they're, they're not wrong. This actually, Matteo had a similar question, which was uh, with regards to the stimulus, how do parties' leadership typically posture in these sorts of negotiations? Who's happier with the final number, D's or R's? Obviously, it takes two parties uh, to gridlock a relief bill. How do they shift blame? Your point is there may not be blame to shift. It may be it may spill on everyone. Yeah, I think that's right. And and look, I think there's no I think it will spill on everyone. And I think that in it just because of the fact that McConnell has just won reelection and and I don't know what you think about what's going to happen in Georgia acts. But I think, you know, a world where if Mitch McConnell ends up with even with the narrowest majority in the Senate having just won reelection. The reality is that if there is lasting blame from this, it may fall more. Again, I, I don't pass judgment on the rightness or wrongness of this, but it may fall more, in fact, on Pelosi than it falls on McConnell or that it will affect Pelosi more than it affects McConnell um, yeah. in the long range. Because, you know, people I, I still think there's, you know, a fair a fair amount of what, ha- you know, you there's a lot of reasons why Democrats underperformed in, in 2020. But uh, I do think a little bit of, I, at least from what I heard from voters when I was when I was out in the world, uh, there are a fair number of people who are kind of like, why is you know why are Democrats you know demanding three trillion or nothing? Why are they demanding one point? You know, just give us something here. Um, and I think there's you know it's a risky game uh, to not uh, to, to 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 risk. It's a risky game to not make whatever accommodations are necessary to get something done here. Yeah, uh, I, you know I. I- I agree with you. I agree with your analysis. I think it's a bit unfair because uh, Democrats have been trying since May to get something done. But I, I'm, like know. I say, I, I understand Pelosi's position. No, no, no. And, and I I'm understand. way more and, sympathetic to Pelosi than I am to McConnell on the merits. I'm just yeah. talking about like who gets the blame, which is a different question. Uh, I, I agree. But it'd be sad for the people who need the help if the we're what we're left with is how to apportion blame. <laughs> uh, last question I'm going to ask myself because I have the hacks mailbag list in go. front of me. Am I correct in inferring that campaign internal polling data tends to be more accurate than the polls reported in the media? If so, why is that? I mean, it's not always true. In 2012, we were, I felt like our polling was uh, in the Obama campaign was right on all the way. Uh, the Republican pollsters made a certain assumption about what turnout was going to look like, and it didn't turn out that way. But th- th- these polls tend to be more uh, assiduous methodology, which is expensive, uh, is better. I will say, I, I want to give a shout out to John Anzalone, uh, who is the uh, pollster for the Biden campaign. He called every state, uh, you know, the margins uh, may have been a little off here or there. 
But uh, when I talked to him before the end of the election, he said, look, I think we could win Georgia. Um, That's my blue plate special. I don't think we're going to win North Carolina. I'd be surprised if we won Florida. I don't think Texas and Ohio are real uh, or Iowa. He he was absolutely dead on. He said, but I w- but we will win Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. He was uh, he was dead on. So you know, uh, the, the, it there there is something to the fact that uh, these non public polls, where a lot of resources are expended, uh, are better. Are better. Are yeah. better. I are better, so. and you know, uh, are better, and and you know, the one the place where it seems to me that the the polling that's the the least useful from the standpoint of a hack, um, which is national polling in the presidential election. You know, the national polling, as was the case in twenty sixteen, basically turned out to be right. Um, yeah. and and media big media organizations commissioning polls, um, get that that is I don't want to say it's easy, but it's it's the it's an easier thing. It turns out there is a, the reality is that there was a problem as there was in 2016 yes, in yes. reaching the Trump voter. Uh, and I think that's going to be the subject of a whole lot of discussion uh, by academics and practitioners uh, in the in the uh, months to come, because um, it, it may be something peculiar to Trump or it may be a problem that uh, like some elites, pollsters have a hard time reaching working class white voters right. and, and that skews the uh and that skews the uh the, the outcome anyway brother always good yeah. to have you this got into uh this was a more uh, expansive discussion that we could get away with because murphy wasn't here calling the question all the time <laughs> he'll be back next week and hopefully you'll be back soon too uh be well good to see you too man take care okay 